Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. It's back. Cue huge cheers around the country. Uh, yeah, welcome back to the podcast and thank you so many of you who have tweeted uh, saying, can you bring the podcast back? Well, the three of you who did, it's back. And um, the reason it's back is, let me be honest, I've suddenly had two or three live events cancelled as a result of the virus outbreak. And um, now I'm sure many other people have been much more seriously affected by the virus, businesses going bankrupt, being killed and all the rest of it. Um, but anyway, I've uh, lost some live work over it and no doubt there's going to be more of that to come. So I thought this is a safe way of communicating. The stage, the public stage might be temporarily removed, who knows? So the podcast um, is the perfect form of communication at times of great medical danger. So uh, on that very um, drastic basis, I'm back and I plan to be back every week, even if they ever get this virus out of the system. What astonishing political times. It was interesting on the night of the election result, I did think, well, will this herald a period, albeit of uh, sort of curious policymaking, but one of relative political stability, because hung parliaments are unavoidably dramatic and stress-inducing and nerve-wracking for onlookers and participants because so many commons votes are unpredictable and governments can fall in a hung parliament. With a big majority, you know for sure that the government can get most of its legislation through and therefore some of the edginess of politics inevitably was removed with that election result. But that edginess has been replaced with the most extraordinary new political landscape. Curiously, the least significant in the long term, though the most vivid at the moment, is the one I've already referred to, the spread of this virus, this sort of global spread, just like the financial crisis. The financial crisis began in the United States and spread and jeopardized the entire global economy very quickly. So this has happened with this wretched virus. And yet, in a way, these terrible medical emergencies are the least political in their consequences and significance. Even this government, this government that famously is disdainful of expertise and follows on several key issues its uh, gut instinct. With this, it seems to me very wisely they've handed over to the experts and are following the advice of the chief medical officer and others who calmly assess each day what is happening and the implications and incidentally in a way that's very accessible in interviews and so it's quite hard for that to become partisan and I remember much less significant than this uh, the foot and mouth disease in the uh, the outbreak of that amongst cattle in the sort of new labor era remember that sort of ancient history and Blair had to 
postpone the date of the 2001 election because of foot and mouth. And at the time, it was nerve-wracking. It felt huge, and holidays were having to be cancelled, and farms were going bankrupt, and paths were being closed off. And New Labour, obsessed with elections, people were in a state about postponing it and what that would mean and so on. But in the end, in terms of the fate of that government and the history of that period, it wasn't of great defining significance. And although this uh, virus is unpredictable in scale and the uh, impact it's going to have on the economy and the health service and on individuals, unless Johnson makes some colossal cock-up that can be clearly identified as his cock-up in this sequence. It's hard to see how this will be a defining event necessarily for the government in the same way as I'm about to come on to. I think things like Brexit, the way it manages the economy, will be. And uh, these are the areas where there are clear dividing lines. Dividing lines, there's a phrase from the uh, New Labour era as well. So if it's okay with you, what I'm going to look at briefly is the state of this government. First podcast I've done under this uh, new post-December election government bit on the Labour leadership and um, then uh, say I'm going to be back on a weekly basis and hopefully I'm going to do a few interviews with people as well as talking as I do on the live shows. Yeah so this government obviously in the short term the huge amount of energy is going to be sucked up by working out what to do with this virus and its impact on the health of the country literally and the metaphorical health of the economy. But in the end of much longer-term significance is the stance that this government is taking over Brexit. The degree to which it is following a hard line, I think, is sort of almost being obscured, really, by this virus. But they are going into these negotiations with the European Union with a line that I don't think is some kind of act of early machismo, a negotiating tactic in the hope that the European Union will succumb in the face of this kind of unyielding machismo. No level playing field, no track with the European Court of Justice, Britain going it alone, the freedom to negotiate trade deals untrammeled, and so on. And if it means tariffs, so be it, we'll be ready for it and we'll be ready for it by the end of December, and businesses better get ready for it. It's interesting, Boris Johnson, people read into him what they want to read into him. So just before the election, I remember having a Twitter exchange with the Times columnist, Phil Collins, a great Times columnist, and he was saying he really hoped, with what I regard as his characteristically charming perversity, he really hoped uh, Boris would get a big majority because that would liberate him from the hardline Eurosceptics, the ERG group in his parliamentary party. It would liberate him to become pragmatic over Europe and that therefore he will be able to negotiate a so-called soft Brexit in which Britain remained close to Europe because that was in its economic interests. 
There was no evidence for that. And at the time, and certainly no evidence since, the, the exact opposite. And uh, the reason being, I think, that Johnson is quite capable of pragmatism and in some areas doesn't have strongly developed views. But there's one part of Brexit which he has decided he believes as a matter of conviction, and it's all to do with this area of sovereignty. Things move so fast these days, it's easy to forget that when Cameron was trying to persuade Johnson to back Remain in the Brexit referendum, Johnson said, well, what about sovereignty? Parliament, Westminster, sovereignty. And Cameron was so keen to get Johnson on side. Cameron was going to shape a bill, a separate sovereignty bill, just to reassure Johnson the areas where Westminster would be sovereign over the European Union, and so on. Now, in the end, there was no sovereignty bill because Johnson decided to back Brexit. So it was a sign that this mammoth piece of legislation was being designed just for one individual. And the moment that individual went on the other side, that was it. So from the beginning, even though he wrote two columns for the Daily Telegraph, one in favour of staying in and one in favour of leaving, when he famously in the end decided to go for the Brexit campaign, on the issue of sovereignty, he had been pressing Cameron some time before he finally came out in favour of Brexit. So at this key moment, where the degree to which Britain, to use that simplistic phrase, takes back control, is central, sovereignty to him remains paramount. In other words, Britain must have the right to decide unilaterally the standards it sets for food, for regulatory frameworks, and the right also to negotiate freely with other countries. Even though, and this is again so different from the government's response to the virus where they leave it to experts to brief on the basis of the evidence, they have published their forecasts for the anticipated growth as a result of a US trade deal. And the best case scenario is puny growth in about 15 years' time. This is on the government's own forecasts. But that, in a way, doesn't matter to Johnson. It's the principle which he has decided matters to him about sovereignty. And that drives him. It has always driven Michael Gove in the way that it used to drive Tony Benn for Labour when he was a leading advocate against what was then the common market. It was about the sovereignty of the British Parliament against unelected bureaucrats in Brussels. And Michael Gove at one point used to go around saying, I'm a Blairite. He's actually a Benite. And Johnson on this is a Benite and has decided to be. And once he has decided to be, it seems that that is a position of conviction on which he isn't going to budge. And if you aren't going to budge on that, it means that divergence with the European Union on a whole range of issues is unavoidable. And then you've got Dominic Cummings in there as well with his visions of a sort of high-tech island based partly, I think, on sort of science fiction, partly on elements of genuine possibilities. And the combination leads to a hard line. And David Frost, the main negotiator, one of the few officials at the Foreign Office who worked well with Boris Johnson, has the same, I think, 
delusional approach. And I noticed in his opening sessions with the European Union negotiators, he had one of those Union Jack badges on his jacket, David Frost, proudly displaying the flag as he went into battle, convinced that um, the might of the UK will prevail. And with this starting point, there isn't much scope for compromise. And the timescale is so short, there is no way that the EU will fragment over this um, because there isn't time to get into detail where France or Germany might take a different stance to some of the other countries, or indeed France might take a different stance to Germany. Could happen if there were kind of a couple of years of detailed talks, but this is going to be so rushed, they will remain united. There is some talk of a kind of compromise where the UK is allowed to formally diverge but will commit to deciding for itself to keep to the kind of standards and regulations of the European Union and therefore some kind of deal can be navigated on that basis and that if the UK did change, in other words, reduced its standards and allowed imports elsewhere of lower standards, the EU would then have the right to change its position, something like that. But I think the EU is so wary of the motives behind the UK leaving the European Union, they're unlikely to kind of accept something which isn't in some way or another legally binding. And that, in a way, is the essence of a trade deal, a legally binding arrangement. So there is on this big trouble to come, and in a short period of time. By July, uh, Johnson has to decide whether to apply for an extension. I'm certain he won't do so. Part of his um, whole swashbuckling approach is to put up deadlines that are almost, well, are unachievable. He did it when he became Prime Minister. Door die, out by October, door die. And he's going to do it with this. And I think, in a curious way, he's one of these figures who believes his own propaganda or his own chosen narrative. So in his early phase as Prime Minister, he said how tough he was going to be yielding compared with Theresa May, who incidentally, one of the great rewritings of history is that she was soft at the beginning of her premiership. She wasn't. She was sort of having her cake and eating it. But he has decided by being very tough, he got that deal. Oven ready, put it in the microwave. But it wasn't like that at all. The EU, the Irish government in particular, and then the rest of the EU couldn't quite believe it when Johnson suggested that, in effect, they reverted back to the withdrawal agreement that the EU had originally proposed, one that largely puts Northern Ireland in a completely different place to the rest of the UK. And But I think he's convinced himself the machismo led to a negotiating triumph and that it can happen again. But this time, and indeed probably that time, he kind of believes the machismo. I don't think, as I say, it's a bluff. So this is going to have big consequences by the middle of the year and into the autumn. And I think Brexit again will become nerve shredding. For certainly for companies, for the farmers, and all those who are likely to be affected. And obviously, in the end, 
people's jobs, uh, people's standards of living, the quality of public services, all of which uh, will be affected by what happens this year. Whether in the short term it has any electoral implications for Johnson, I doubt. I think that those who voted for him last December have noted that Britain has left the European Union. They therefore feel their side has won and that he delivered for them and that will sustain him and that alliance of support for some time to come. But it will have seismic impact on the British economy and over time that will have some kind of consequence in terms of voters attitudes towards this government. But that will also partly depend, of course, on the performance of whoever becomes leader of the opposition. It looks like it's going to be Keir Starmer. And uh, I better reflect a bit on the Labour leadership contest because this podcast hasn't been around since that started either. And what is interesting to me is the way that this has been as a contest, unfairly reported. If a year ago, pundits had said, I predict Keir Starmer will be the next Labour leader, as it looks as if he's going to be, most people, I think, would have said that is impossible. It will either be a woman or probably both a Corbynista, because the party is so dominated by followers of Jeremy Corbyn and momentum would have been cited and the grip and so on of the so-called hard left and ill-defined term and and yet there it is it looks as if Starmer is going to become the next leader and that says quite a lot in itself it says that after that December defeat the members of this party want to choose someone who has at least the weightiness to give them some chance of getting back into the game. I think uh, some political writers and journalists underestimate the degree to which, especially after a cold, wet general election campaign, where people have been out on doorsteps and dare to hope that they might get into a hung parliament at least, to be slaughtered has an impact. And it shows also, I think, that the portrayal of this mass party has been too clichéd. Oh, it's a hard left takeover and all the rest of it. When you've got hundreds of thousands of members, a mass membership party presents all kinds of problems for any leadership. And a lot of Corbyn's problems came from trying to, or not succeeding in, or perhaps not even trying to control a mass membership. But it also makes it much harder to define. And clearly some of these young people in Momentum are not following orders from Momentum's high command and um, have opted for what might prove to be a more fertile route in opposition towards an attempt to win next time. So that, I think, is interesting. The outcome of elections tells you a lot about the mood of a party at any given time. It's an absolute myth that any election tells you a party is indifferent to winning. They do want to win, and they do care about winning. But this one looks as if it's been a response to that December colossal defeat in the same way that Johnson's election 
as leader of the Tory party was a response to the rise of Farage and the Brexit party and the total collapse of Tory support in the European elections last summer. That was the context to Johnson's triumph in the leadership contest. And the context of Starmer rising is that December terrible, terrible defeat for Labour. And yet commentators have been very sniffy, saying Starmer's calling for unity, but unity over what? There is no clarity, and clarity is the route to power and all these kind of lofty forms of analysis. It's a complete misreading of leadership contests. There hasn't been a single leadership contest ever where those who seek to win, especially, by the way, after an election defeat, offer total candor in public about what has gone wrong, what they would do to put it right, because they need to win the contest first. It's only in retrospect that people read into, say, the election of Tony Blair as a consequence of a crusading leadership campaign during a leadership contest, or Cameron with his uh, win in the Conservative leadership contest, or whatever. Go back to Margaret Thatcher. The most daring thing she did in that Tory leadership contest in 1975 was to be filmed washing up for World in Action. And there's, I've got this anthology of columns written by the great legendary, now late, columnist Peter Jenkins. And the day of Thatcher's election, he writes this column in this anthology saying, quite, it was a good opening line about, she's been everywhere on TV, Thatcher. We've been Thatcherated, and yet we don't really know who she is. Blair proposed the abolition of Clause 4, which was only a symbolic change, but an important one, once he had been safely elected in the conference in the autumn of 1994. He had been elected July before. Cameron hardly said anything in his leadership contest. He said, we've got to be nice to poor people and, you know, that kind of vacuous stuff, which he did very elegantly. Uh, But elegance isn't a form of candour. And indeed, on Europe, it was him proposing to leave the EPP, the centre-right grouping of the European Parliament. David Davis, his main rival for the leadership, was saying he would stick with the EPP. And he was meant to be the Eurosceptic. So the idea that Keir Starmer has been uniquely evasive in his desire to win is rubbish. And in fact, the campaign... As far as any campaign can be remotely judged as good, bad and stuff, this one has been pretty good, I think. I think all three candidates, three as in those in that last stage of the contest, have performed pretty well as a panel of three in these tedious hustings, have been good-humoured, quite witty at times, decent to each other, which is a good thing, not a bad thing, given they've got to work together subsequently. And you can see the kind of framework of uh, agreement. It's an absolute myth, again, that they have all just said everything's wonderful so far. There's been agreement that the leadership was an issue at the election. All three of them have said that. There's agreement that Brexit was screwed up, though they disagree about the nature of the screw-up, but they recognise it as being a probably unavoidable calamity for that party. 
They have all said the manifesto was far too stuffed with policies without any explanation or narrative as to what drove those policies. And they all said anti-Semitism was an issue on the doorstep and one that blunted any sense of moral purpose more widely. So you can see the building blocks within those limited areas of candor of all of them and their various bits of that party coming together under Starmer. Now, they've got impossible terrain to navigate over the next few years. In some ways, it's far more challenging than the 1980s. In the 1980s, Labour still had Scotland, still dominated the north of England, and now they've lost both of those. They have a clearer path in one sense, that there is not a formidable third force at the moment. Neil Kinnock in the 1980s faced a formidable SDP. He faced it under the leadership of David Owen, who was revered in much of the newspapers and tormented Kinnock because people used to write about him as the actual alternative prime minister, David Owen, not Neil Kinnock. Now, whoever becomes Labour leader faces no equivalent the, the opposite. The Lib Dems are shrunk, demoralised and wondering again about their purpose and with Ed Davey recognising that actually it's better for the Lib Dems when they try and find common ground with Labour instead of doing what Nick Clegg did and to some extent what Joe Swinson did which is to accommodate Tory aspirations. Clegg famously with the coalition and Swinson by giving Johnson the election on the day he wanted it, which was very nice of her, but hasn't done her or her party much good. The Lib Dems need to think very carefully. They need a post-mortem. All parties, grown-up parties, have a post-mortem after a traumatic period. They still haven't worked out why they found it so comfortable or a faction of their party with the Tories in that coalition, at least at first, and what they now stand for in this coming period of tumult. So it's going to be possible for a new Labour leader to chart a path, but very, very, very difficult, of course. But politics is, and leadership is, impossibly difficult. I think Boris Johnson is finding that as well. He's one of these leaders who uh, became Prime Minister without having the experience of being leader of the opposition. In a curious way, although powerless, being leader of the opposition is quite good preparation to being a prime minister uh, because you have to, in effect, shadow the prime minister and respond to unexpected events. You have to manage a team like a prime minister has to manage a team. You have to manage a parliamentary party like a prime minister has to. Uh, You have to present in a media like a prime minister has to, or all prime ministers until Boris Johnson on the whole chooses not to do much of that. By the way, I don't blame him. I can understand why they don't necessarily accommodate the Today programme on a daily basis to be slaughtered by an interviewer at ten past eight. But I think he is finding it difficult to do these things. He's never really had to manage a big and complicated team of egos with varying ideas. He's trying to do it by being uniquely dominant from number ten. But... 
already that dominance has meant he's lost a chancellor and could well lose a home secretary. So it's going to be so interesting to see how he adapts, because basically so far he's been a sort of campaigning prime minister. He arrived with a campaign to get Brexit done, do or die, and that was all very wildly oscillating, but ultimately triumphant with that genuine, it was a huge achievement to win that election in December, and actually to to do the deal, although it wasn't a new deal. It was a smart move. But now he's got to govern and decide on economic policy, and whether you really are going to boost spending and put up taxes, and which taxes to put up, or whether you're going to go for borrowing, in which case at some point you will have to explain why borrowing was a sin for so long under the uber- Thatcherism of Cameron and Osborne, and now is such a virtue. They are the same governing party, although it feels like a new government. And with that context of a new political landscape, it's new rock and roll politics every week, as I say, sometimes with interviews as well. So, welcome back. Dark context of this terrible virus triggering me into action, but. I stick to my pledges sometimes. It's every week from now on. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.